What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the magic podcast all about slinging burn. And if you or anyone in your life shares our obsession with Rift Bolt and Skewer the Critics, we are here for you. We won't rehabilitate you, but we'll have a lot of fun. I'm Duncan, casting Lava Dark to get my prowess count up to six. So, Donovan, you had a response? Yeah, I got a handy dandy Doomblade here. Oh, well, I'm just going to send like eight damage to your face before I. That attack. hurts. That hurts, my friend. That hurts. And I guess run this dude into your Doomblade and, uh, um, no hand, no mana. I'm done. Karma boy, take over the battlefield now, my friend. <laughs> oh no! Well, I think I think you got there this one, Donovan. Have all your games been going that way this week? Um, no, no, no. I've been trying to make this uh, deck work, and it hasn't been going great. That you know, we talked about on the set spoiling podcast thing, where we were talking about all the different cool cards in the set, mm-hmm. all the different cards we wanted to try out in like a sacrifice strategy. Oh yeah. I've been trying to make this, like, black-white sacrifice deck work. Is this one where you've got the four witches' ovens and two witches' cauldrons? Yeah. I narrowed it down to one witches' cauldron, just to be, like, a sack outlet, just to make me more likely to draw a witches' oven. I think it's kind of works there as just the one of. Sure. And, like, some stuff like the scythe, I'm only playing two of now, and I don't even know if maybe I should cut it. Oh, And really? it's, like, all these cool cards. But the one that's really been performing quite well for me is Griffinary. Yeah. That one's taking a little bit more to get it online, but it takes over a game once I do. What does Griffinary do for our listeners? Uh, it's a white and one for an enchantment that says, at the beginning of your instep, if you gained three or more life this turn, create a 2-2 Griffin token with flying. You're gaining a bunch of life, huh? Well, it's just food like, tokens? Witches Oven, you can sack a Griffin and get a food token, and then you can sack that food and get three life, and you get another Griffin from your airy. Oh, sure. And so if I have anything else to play with that, then it does really well. Like, if I have a second airy, then I get another sure. griffin. If I have a That's silver a smoke ghoul, engine then I can bring back my ghoul as well, and he can be sacked to draw a card and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, so so what you're saying is, like, your witch's oven and your griffin airy don't really do much of anything together, but they run a little engine that you add anything else to, and it starts churning out. And the witch's oven with the silver smoke ghoul does the same thing, where I can sack the ghoul for a food and then gain three life and bring the ghoul back at the end of turn. Yeah. And then, like, sometimes I'll have other ways to gain the three life. Like, if I have Soren in play, then my creatures have lifelink and I can attack with my creatures and stuff like that. Sure. And so I've kind of I've kind of worked out a deck list that's starting to work, and now I'm yeah. just working on mostly on the sideboard. Okay. That was uh, what we were talking about last week. Yeah, and I think that some of those cards that I thought would be really cool, like Witch's Cauldron and the <laughs> Malefic Scythe, mm-hmm. are really good. If you're going to play a long grindy game, but you you just die against the really fast decks with those because you need to, they're a little bit mana intensive to get to really use them. Sure. The Scythe's not too bad, but the Witch's Cauldron really is. Okay. It gets to be mana intensive because it's two to activate it. Right. And then like, what else are you doing on your turn? And the Scythe isn't too bad, but it gets to be mana intensive if you really want to do dumb things with it. Like if you equip it to your cat, sack your cat for a food, bring your cat back, put the Scythe back on it, attach it, sack it to another Witch's Oven and get another food and bring the cat back and attach the scythe to it. You know, like, that starts to be a bit mana-intensive, and you just didn't... I didn't have time to deploy that much mana. Sure. I think it's kind of a bit of spoilers for our episode this week, but later on we'll be talking about a Circle of Protection Red, and the author of the article we're doing calls it mana-intensive, and at first blush you're like, 
it costs two mana to play and one mana to activate. But when you're activating it multiple times a turn, it really is. Yeah, it's like, it gets mana intensive, and it's like, yeah, sure, I can spend three mana on this, but can you spend three mana on that and do literally anything else, you know? Right. And so that's that's where it gets hard. For sure. So I haven't been winning much, because I've been really trying to tune this new deck. Sure. I mean, that's going to happen while you're working on what your list is. And I tried out my uh, experimental Frenzy Azusa deck as well, and that one just failed miserably. I don't think it's salvageable. Uh-oh. Man, so that's crazy. I, I actually want to get to try some things with some of the new cards, but I haven't been playing at all. I need to figure out a way to make to open up some more time in my schedule for Magic. Well, you know, we've had a busy week. Fourth of July. and That is true. Anyway, it seems like Star City Games has been running some kind of event that's been going on for at least a few weeks now that I at least had no clue was happening, so we hadn't talked about it. Yeah. I really had barely heard anything about it, so I didn't really know much about it myself either. And so we were looking for stuff that was going on this past weekend, and I was like, you know what? I think I remember hearing Corey Baumeister mention on their um, SCG versus Live series that mm-hmm. he was going to be playing in the SCG event this weekend, which made it sound like it was at least big enough to be worth mentioning. Yeah, and I would feel bad about having missed this stuff because I try to like be on the lookout for events and things to bring up on the show. That's part of what I do for the podcast since, you know, I don't ever play magic. You know, I get these notes together for each episode. Except that uh the first time any of this showed up in any of my like news feeds or like this was on Watsy's front page this week was the report from the Star City Games online qualifier two from June twentieth. And that was posted on Star City Games' website and on Watsy's website July 4th. So I don't know what's going on with coverage for this thing, but it apparently just didn't make a huge splash. Yeah, and I don't know. I think what it is is I think these events are one-day events that start Mm -hmm. at like 10 o'clock in the morning in Roanoke. Yeah. Which is going to be like 9 o'clock here. Uh, Yeah. And on Saturday is like the one day that I don't really get on Twitch at all to watch stuff. Friday, I don't do much, but sometimes I do. But when I'm at work, I'm on Twitch all the time. Yeah. Just playing something in the background while I'm sorting magic cards or whatever, you know? Sure. And so these events are just gone under the radar for me. And they say that they've got coverage for them, but I've, like, never actually seen them playing their stuff, you know? Well, yeah, I think, like, you might have missed it because they are, like, covering it on the Star City Games Twitch, right, during the events. And so, like, you missed it, but, like, the mind-boggling thing to me is... Star City Games didn't report the standings from this event until July 4th. Yeah. This is like two weeks after the event happened. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's fine. It's not a big deal. I'm not like, what are you guys doing over there? I'm just, I felt like, felt bad for not knowing this was happening until I realized even the people hosting the event didn't tell us about it until two weeks after the fact. Yeah. But they're running the Star City Games Tour online, and they've, they're actually into the second qualifier. And uh, Yeah, and I might want to play in some of this, because it kind of reminds me, it looks like, about how a lot of the CFB online Magic Fests went. Yeah. How it's just, there's five, one, two, three, six events in a day, most days of the week, yep. that you can just play in that are open events, and then if you do well in them, you qualify for the bigger events. Yeah, I think the way it works is they have what they call challenges every day, which cost $20 to play in, and then if you 4-0, you get 10 points and $50 of store credit at Star City, and if you 3-1, you get 4 points 
$20 store credit at Star City, and any other results gets you just two points. Yeah. And then anyone who has 10 points or more, plus some people that they just want to include, get invited to their qualifier tours, which is just another event. And then uh, some number of those people will move on from that to the seasonal championships. Is it people who have 100 points or more? Uh, you have to have 100 online SEG points. But everyone in the top eight of their qualifiers gets 100 yes. points. So if you top eight that... the top 16 gets 50. My question is, do you need to, like, how often do those yeah. reset? Is it possible then if you just, like, say... <laughs> this would be unreasonable because we're talking about, like, you 4-0'd 10 times and then did nothing at the qualifiers or whatever. But just out of curiosity, if you did, say, 4-0 10 of these challenger events, does that mean that you, like, can automatically get into the championship? I think so. Even if you bomb the qualifiers or don't participate hey if you go to the if you participate in the qualifier you get another 10 points buddy all right yeah that's true but yeah i think so as far as i can tell okay but the challenges are 20 dollar events and if you do well enough you will get that back in store credit at star city yeah and so you know you can then get some like paper cards or whatever with that money but you are out that money and as far as i know star city doesn't stop you from using store credit to pay for new events so all right i think you could just roll it into new events if you want to and that's cool too but i was saying you are out that 20 bucks so you're not going to get that back you do if you go to the championship qualifier and then do well in that they pay out in real monies not funny monies sure it's uh what is it like a thousand dollars for first place yeah you've top 32 you get 200 bucks like it's like a you know like an scg open you know yeah and you just just need the ten points to get into that. So like even if even if you bomb all of the challenges, right? If you do five of them, you'll get in, right? Yeah, and that's only costs you a hundred bucks. Pay a hundred bucks to go to the qualifier, guaranteed, and have a chance at getting your two hundred dollars back. Still, like, huh? Yeah, but this is neat. I think we've essentially laid out how it all works. There's a bunch of weekly qualifier events that qualify you for the championship qualifier, which is every weekend. And then it looks like like once a month there's or something like that there's a seasonal championship and things reset at the championship is what it looks like. So that's how. It yeah, works. as far as I can tell, the first seasonal championship is going to be Sunday, July nineteenth. Which means I have to qualify for it this weekend. Oh, so much work. So yeah, you got about well, I guess from the time this actually goes up, a little more than a week. I gotta win two whole events, dog. <laughs> Don't worry, I got this. And the uh, the actual championship event first place is like. $2,000. Second place, also $2,000. And then descends from there. And considering they probably also got some money in one of the championship qualifiers, if they didn't do the old, right. I played in 50 <laughs> qualifier events. But that looks like a neat event. Seems pretty simple, really. Yeah, um, I think I might participate in it some. I just hadn't really heard yeah. much about it. I, I think I'd heard people mention playing in challenges and stuff, but I thought they were just talking about moto challenges, and I don't play those, so... Sure. Yeah, oh, th that is worth mentioning. This is all on Arena. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's cool. I think this, the second qualifier, the one that wrapped up on the 20th, was won by Aaron Diaz, playing a Teamer Reclamation build with new cards from Corset in it. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Which ones? He had two Sublime Epiphanies. Okay. I think he actually took out a Wilderness Reclamation. Some people play three. It's it's not crazy unheard of thing. And he had Joriel Monvali Recluse. Okay, that's cool. And Lanawar Visionaries. That's neat, too. Is he still playing Uro? Yep. 
Explain four arrows, four arrows two visionaries. Two visionaries makes that Joriel kind of cool. Yeah. For our listeners, Joriel Monvali Recluse is a one-two for a green and one. It's a human druid that has whenever you draw your second card each turn, create a two-two green cat creature token. And for green, green, and four, until end of turn, creatures you control have base power and toughness of XX, where X is the number of cards in your hand. And the Lenor Visionary and the Uro are just creatures that draw you a card when they come into play, and so they make you able to trigger that ability to make a 2-2 cat quite often. And give you more cards to use that second ability if you want to. Sure. And then Sublime Epiphany is a card that Donovan and our guest Daniel were talking about a couple weeks ago, which is... Very cryptic command. Yeah, he has, like, extra cryptic command. Mm Mm-hmm. Blue, blue, and four. Choose one or more modes. Counter target spell, return target permanent to to its owner's hand. Target player draws a card and make a token copy of target creature you control. Yep, and you get counter target activated or triggered ability. Oh, I forgot about that one. Missed one. This thing has five modes on it, and you can do up to all of them. Yeah. Oh, there's a Ugin in his sideboard. And Scavengingers. Those are good cards. Yeah. It is one of those unfortunate situations where the, the color that is best at fighting an Uro is green, which Uro is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been green all over for the last couple of sets, right? It's like green's the best color and the best thing to fight it is also green. Yep. Maybe uh maybe you can roll back green's power level a bit. Uh I guess. <laughs> Or just amp everyone else. Power creep isn't a thing, right? <laughs> I'm kind of fine with just green being the best, but... But it shouldn't also be the counter to it. You know, that's what we talked about before when we were talking about bannings and stuff, I think. Yeah. Once is, ideally, when you know something is a problem, is when not only is it the best thing, which is fine, there's always going to be a best thing, right? But also when the best thing to fight it, is that thing. Yeah. Then just everyone's going to have that thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which may also be relevant to our main topic this week. So you want to uh, move on, talk about the news, and then yeah. we get into it? All the news. Your daily newspaper. <laughs> we have so much news this week. There's actually not a lot going on right now you know what's, what's... i think it's one of those times where a lot of people like the new sets out and everybody's kind of settling letting letting that see what happens and so there's not a lot of yeah. stuff going on yeah just got the new set so we don't have like new set stuff news we there's not really events going on so there's not a whole lot of events or drama around what happened at events and stuff like that mm-hmm. but we did get some uh info about these new planeswalker decks for corset right yeah um and they're not a huge surprise just because the new cards out of them and stuff were spoiled during spoiler season mm-hmm. and so like you had kind of an idea of how the decks exactly what the decks were going to be already you know yeah you just get to find out what cards they fleshed it out with from other sets like banishing light in the fast Riquet deck and like quantities on each of the cards and stuff like that right so it's not really like anything groundbreaking and earth shattering, but it does look pretty cool. Yeah, did anything stand out to you as particularly interesting from the deck list? Um, not really from the list. It was interesting to me that the uncommon from the Liliana's deck that is a three of in that deck is going for like five bucks a piece on TCG Player right now. So, oh really? That was the Liliana's Scrounger, right? Wasn't that like five dollars? Oh, that's the mid price, which with something that's as it is few copies of the like of the, on TCG players like that card's gonna be, it's kind of inflated. But the market price is still like two fifty on a card like that. Yeah, and there's three of them in that deck plus two booster packs, and you get 
you know, the rares and stuff like that. So, like, that seems like that deck sure. is just straight gas value-wise. All right. So, you make money on the Liliana's Death Mage? Deck. I mean, if you're able to sell all the pieces, yes. But it's it'd be hard to sell all the pieces. So, like, the Liliana's Death Mage card itself is... The Planeswalkers from those decks are usually worth, like, five bucks a piece. But it's hard to find somebody who wants to buy one. Yeah. Okay. You know, the thing that I noticed... <laughs> this may seem a bit silly, I guess, but the thing that I particularly noticed about these decks is that they each come with one showcase land. Yeah. And I th- I kind of thought that was a bit disappointing. I thought that actually might be a good selling point for these decks, considering the showcase lands from this set are actually cool looking. They're neat, but you would want to have a bunch of them, and there's not a good way to get a bunch of them. Like, I thought that might might be a good selling thing for these decks, is if they not only had, you know, the cards that they have in them, but also just the lands and then were the showcase but versions. But the thing is, they don't want to make these things something that an established player wants to buy. That's the problem with these. They don't want their major portion of their player base to purchase No, them? they want them to be available at stores for the, the new player to buy. Oh, okay. Which I think is the issue with them, for me personally. I guess. Because they don't want them to be good so that the, the established players want to buy them, but that means if they're bad... I don't want to advise a new player to buy them. Yeah, that's almost exactly what I was about to say. As I was going to say, I've always had this problem with pre-built decks, I guess, of any kind. Like, they've had various different versions of, we used to call them pre-cons back in the yeah. day. It's like they've got Planeswalker decks now that used to have... Beam decks. Beam decks, yeah, all kinds of things, right? And the problem is, like, like you said, they don't want them to be too good because they want new players to be able to get them and have a deck ready to play with. But me, as someone who's taught many, many people to play Magic, I have never once said, buy one of these decks and then start playing. I have always either started them out with drafting or given them some cards. And it's like, here are some cards, learn to play with these, and then they'll start buying advanced products. Yeah. So I don't really... I get what you're saying about wanting the Planeswalker decks to be available to new players, but I don't know of any new players who would buy them. Yeah. I've never known a new player who bought a pre That's why my store, start like right now, did not purchase any of these. We oh. generally only ever sell very many of them during pre-release because they're a way that players can get their hands on some extra cards to play with some sure. of the new cards early and stuff. Yeah. And outside of that, we usually only sell like three or four of them entire, like from the entire set. So if we're not getting to sell them mm-hmm. at pre-release, it's just it costs us more to buy a set of them than we're going to get in selling them. Yeah. And so since we can't do pre-releases right now because of the pandemic, we just didn't buy any. Yeah. Basically, to, to loop this back around, that's kind of why I thought that the lands thing would be a good idea is because it doesn't put really good cards in it, you know, that'll make these things worth money to just buy and resell. They're just lands. But they are something desirable that someone who is an enfranchised player might be like, well, I don't really want most of these cards, but I would like all those lands, so I'll buy one. Yeah, which is you true. Know? But it's like, think back like to Battle for Zendikar. The mm-hmm. booster packs did not have non-full art lands in them, right? And yeah. so, I don't know, were they theme decks back then? I don't remember. The, I think they were theme decks back <laughs> then, still. They didn't put full art lands in the theme decks because they wanted them to not be something somebody bought them to get like 20 full art lands from it you know yeah but that meant that they had to make these special waste cards that were not full arts that went in the planeswalker decks for the waste slot in oath of the Gatewatch, i think and so it's just like what you you didn't want to put full arts in these so you made another like you made a non-full art waste when you didn't have any of those in booster packs <laughs> it's just weird 
It is weird. But, you know, I here's the thing. It's like, I expect they have the metrics on, like, overall sales and stuff for these, and if they weren't selling them, they wouldn't be making them. But I find I don't see it, you know? I'm assuming they see it, and fine, whatever. Yeah, I, and I have to think that there is some kind of market somewhere in the world where the people selling the product are not concerned about what the product is really going to be worth to the player that are recommending yeah. them to new players and those new players are having a good time. But it just, in my sure. market at least, if you sold them to a new player and they came to an event later, everybody at that event would tell them that it was a terrible idea to purchase that and that they shouldn't have done so. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want them to feel like I was trying to scam them, you know? Yeah, I think that's a big part of making a successful store and something that your store does particularly well and is one of the reasons why I like it. Like, I have to admit, some bias in that my brother is significantly involved with boardwalk games. Yeah. But one of the things that I like about the store is that you are building a relationship with your players and you are creating an environment for them and facilitating their magic playing, not just selling cards to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a thing we really try to focus on. I mean, I have a lot of players that come to me during the pandemic going like, hey man, how can we get you money? And I appreciate that because they understand that I'm trying to, throughout the year, I've been trying to be a place for them to play Magic. And if they want that to exist whenever the pandemic's over, the store needs to have acquired some money somehow. Right. And so like, they want me to be there for them to play Magic there. And I appreciate that. And I bring that up because as part of it, like we're sitting here talking about these Planeswalker decks and you're, you know, saying, yeah, lots of stores probably do sell Planeswalker decks to new players because like that's how they're marketed. So like, oh yeah, you're a new player, why don't you try one of these? And they sell them, and that works out fine for the store for that interaction, right? But what you were saying is like, overall, you'd rather not do that because you want to not just sell a product to the customer, but facilitate their magic play. Yeah. And I do try to find out when a new player's, because I'm trying to get rid of these Planeswalker decks that I have sitting on my shelf, you know? I try to find out if they're the kind of player that this might actually work for. I'm like, hey, are you just playing at home with your buddies? Because if that's the case, like, this might work great for you. Yeah. If y'all aren't going to tournaments, y'all aren't playing in a large group of players, then it's a great start starting off point for building your collections. Like, look, here's a deck of 60 cards and a couple booster packs. So yeah, you can start playing Magic with this. Yeah. Well, anyway. I'm looking at these decks. They continue to look like they are still not good decks. <laughs> like, I think we have kind of touched on this pretty much every time, like, Planeswalker decks or pre-constructed stuff has come up. We've gone a little bit more in-depth into this right now because we have time, given that we don't have any other news. But, uh, yeah, I mean, our general position is, like, we don't really care for this product. But... They've got it for Corset 21. The deck lists are available now. You can check that out. It does look like each of the decks has a good card in it. And some of those common and uncommon spells that a beginning player might need to play with, you know? So, like, these ones don't look especially bad. The mono white one has, like, Bossery's Lieutenant in it, which I'm not really sure about. But this card looks like it might be okay. And Speaker of the Heavens, which is a card that I really want to play with. And then, like, the blue one has this Teferi's Timeless Insight, which is a really bad card if you're playing Standard, but probably a really good card if you're playing Commander. But then it's got, like, four copies of Frantic Inventory and three Ops, you know? Like, those are useful cards. Yeah. And then, like, the black one has, like, Demonic Embrace and Liliana Standard Bear, which are both kind of might be a good cards. We, like, we, we're not really sure yet, you know? But it's also got three copies of Grass of Darkness, which is a really good card, you know? Yeah, that's just a removal yeah. spell. It's a reliable removal spell. It's a good tool to have in your tool. And the red one's got this Chandra's Incinerator, which some people are talking about being really powerful and modern. 
Mm-hmm. It's got double vision, which is probably a really good card in Commander. Yeah. And then it's got, you know, Slaying Fire, Infuriate, Shock, like these spells that mono red players are going to need for standard, you know? Yeah. And then I guess the green one is like Gurg's Harbinger is a card that looks pretty good. Not really yeah, sure yet, you know? It really does. And then it's got, you know, Ram Through and Gurg's Uprising, which the Ram Through seems like just a card green players are going to need through standard. And Gurg's Uprising is a card that any commander player might want. Sure. So it's just like. These ones seem a little bit better than some of the other ones have been. But even like the, I think it was Ravnica Allegiance ones had like a Gilded Lotus in it. And even still, like it didn't sell super, you know? So Yeah, yeah and I guess it's worth noting. They do like each come with a unique Planeswalker. So for for collectors, there's value to these as well. Yeah, I know so some people that... This is the only place you get these Planeswalkers. They're not great Planeswalkers, I, I don't think. Can you play them in standard? You can. You can. Okay. You're, the idea is supposed to be that you're allowed to play these decks at a FNM. Yeah. You'll lose, but... Sure. Okay. So, like, you know, there's these unique Planeswalkers, and like I said, they're not great, but if you, you know, you want them, this is where you get them, and some yeah. people will. Yeah. And these things are fun to get two of these decks and play them with your buddy. Yeah. You know, I enjoy doing that I've never them. done that, I don't think. <laughs> but I think that's about the news, Donovan. I probably expounded on these Planeswalker decks more than people wanted to hear. Well, do you want to give us some advice about our upcoming core set financing before we move on? They didn't even need any money. They had magic cards. Yeah, sure. I don't know if core set is what you're planning on. No, yeah, that's what I was talking about. I was just going to talk about just some of the good hits in the core set Mm -hmm. when you're pulling packs and my advice on some of them. Some of these are pretty obvious. Like, that they were going to be good stuff. But, like, Ugin the Spirit Dragon, Fairy, Master of Time. These cards are still above, like, $25. Yeah. But they're on their way down. So, like, I think if you got one, it might be good to sell them. Okay. I think, like, right now, if you crack open Ugin the Spirit Dragon, and you kind of want one for your uh, Team or Rex sideboard, it might be worthwhile to go ahead and sell it now, and then pick it up again later. No, if you get a regular one, probably not. It's probably better for you just to have it now if you actually have been wanting one, you know? Yeah. But if you're not planning to use it anytime soon, you're just like, oh, this is a good card for standard. It mm-hmm. might be better for you to go ahead and sell them and get your money for them now. And then whenever you find out you need them later, you can probably buy it cheaper. Okay. I especially though wanted to talk about some of these like alternate art forms of some of these guys. Like Ugin the Spirit sure. Dragon. I know somebody who opened one that was the uh, foil full art version of the Ugin the Spirit Dragon. Mm-hmm. And they asked me this. They messaged me on Thursday of last week going like, hey man, do you think I should sell this or hold on to it to see if it goes higher? And that card was selling for like a hundred bucks at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was just told him, I was like, I think you should probably sell it. And he's just like, but Ugin's have been like a hundred dollars for a regular one. And this is a foil special art one. Don't you think it'll be worth more later? But historically, like mythics in standard, even foil fancy versions of them are very rarely above like $50. Yeah, And so... Yeah, you could hold on to it, and if Ugin just becomes the biggest, baddest thing in Standard, and which, I mean, I think technically it is, but I mean, as far as actual <laughs> gameplay goes, sure. then I, I'll be wrong, and you should have held on to it, and the foil fancy version of it might be super expensive, but it's just most likely that that, that card is going to be worth like $50 later, and so if you want to get, like, if you want to get the most money for it, yeah, you should probably sell it now. Maybe buy them when they get down to 50 and then 10 years from now, they'll be worth 100, 150 bucks again later because they're the fancy Ugin thing, you know? Yeah. But I think like as far as 
making your money on it goes, you should sell it now if you've got one of those guys. So I, I think that in standard, generally, myth, even Mythics are not going to be worth more than like $30 for a regular one and $50 for the foil, usually. And like you get some stuff like Brazen Borrower spiked up to like 40 bucks, and then the foil one was 60 and the foil Sweet. showcase one was 75 and Uro, the Titan dude, was $40, and the foil was 60 and stuff like that. But for those cards, selling them at 100 would still have been the correct decision, you know? Yeah. So is this, like, just because the cards, like, say, from the most recent set are just getting opened yeah. so much that, like, no matter how much in demand they are, their supply is never going to be low enough that it drives the price up too high? Uh, Yeah, and I think that also it's hard for the price to get driven up too high while the card is still in print. You yeah. know what I mean? The higher the card's price goes, the more people open packs of that set. Yeah. And so the more of them get out there. And so while it's in print, it's really hard for a card to get up over $60 or something, you know? Sure. Because at that point, people will go like, oh, man, I could buy one copy of that card for $60, or I could buy this box for 100 and maybe there's one in there. Right. And so those are the kind of things like I just wanted to say is like, these guys are the really good hits you want to look out for in your packs. Grim Tutor and Terror of the Peaks, though, are still worth 10 to $20. So those guys are pretty good hits, too. Okay. And then one of the things I wanted to mention is like Azusa and Heroic Intervention at Rare, I think, are the really good rares. Um, I think Veto Thorn of the Dusk Rose is also coming in at higher than a booster pack, Fabled Passage as well. So like those cards are pretty good to pull out of your packs at Rare. You don't have to get a Mythic for those ones. So no, a conspicuous snoop going for more than a cost of a pack. Well, I'm looking at the market price right now, which is what most oh. players are going to sell it at, and Conspicuous Snoop is not. He's only $3, is what most players are going to sell him at. And sadly, this set doesn't have a lot of really good uncommons. It's pretty much just Eliminate, and that one's not even a dollar. So, sure. But, you know, it's one of those things that if you there's some uncommons that you, if you think it's good, it might be worth holding onto it and seeing what happens. Because sometimes uncommons will not really be worth much, and then later on, people didn't know they needed to hold on to those and so they become really scarce whenever they become a real staple in a deck like uh mm -hmm. with corset 2019 the the aether gust cycle like aether gust pretty much everyone knew was pretty good and veil of summer pretty much everyone knew was good but they got in such high demand that they still were worth a few dollars and then the the black one that killed a uh, greener noxious grasp right that one got out to a couple bucks i think mostly just because people didn't know they needed to hold on to it so like you know if you see an uncommon that you think is good Hold on to that guy, see what happens. Alright, cool. So, basically, if I'm opening packs right now, and I didn't open up a Mythic, say, what, my best pull right now is still Azusa? Yeah, Azusas are, are going for about 8 bucks. So, pulling Sweet. an Azusa is still pretty good, and uh, I think that pulling an Azusa might be a worthwhile investment if you're going to want to hold on to it for later, because they're one of those cards that every green commander deck needs to have in competitive commander play. Yeah, I think that, uh, like you were saying, while it's still in print, it's probably not going to get terribly expensive, but once the next set comes out, or like Azusa rotates out of standard again or whatever, I think that those Azusas even after being reprinted, are going to jump back up to, I would guess, around like 20 bucks. Maybe not for a few years, but... All right, are we ready to go to an ad break? Sure. Sounds good to me. Gotta rake in that sweet, sweet ad money. Oh, yeah. We'll take a quick break, and we will come back and talk about why we're not afraid of stupid white cards. Well, mostly because they're stupid white cards, but... Welcome, friends, to the Barrington Forge Grand Opening! 
We're celebrating all week, and we want you to stop by and experience the exhilarating feelings of the Forge. In the smoke-laden air, at incredible temperatures, you begin to feel lightheaded and euphoric. And if that weren't enough, we can chew your horses or mules, or perform any other iron work in a workmanlike manner. Finally, if you think you have the skills of a craftsman and a hide of leather, you too could join Burrington Forge. Just drop by and let us know that you're interested in a position as a forge tender, and you're not averse to frequent superficial burns. Visit Burrington Forge and get hammered! Sweet, I'm probably gonna head over there to uh, Burrington Forge when we get done here, Donovan. I just, um, I don't know what it is about the place. I don't have any ironwork I need done, but it just feels nice to be over there. Yeah, I was gonna comment that I'm, after they're at, I'm not really sure exactly what it is they're selling. Is it like some kind of spa thing where you go in and you just waft in the vapors, or were they actually doing ironwork? Because I, I think they mentioned kind of both things, and... Well, every time I've been over there, I say it's it's just interesting to watch like the smithing and stuff happening. But it's so hot and everything that you really you just need something. And there's always a guy, you know, in the back selling beers and stuff like that, so you can you can pick up a few of those, and it really really helps. All right. Well, it sounds like a good place. I may have to go check it out. But this week we're actually doing another episode in our series on the shoulders of giants. And this week it's who's afraid of the big bad circle by Dan Paskins, and uh, his subtitle was Today the Story of Why I'm Not Afraid of Circle of Protection Red, Silver Knight, Worship, Pulse of the Fields, or any other stupid white cards. Yeah, these are some cards that I really kind of wish Wizards would print more of, and they might yeah. also kind of agree with me, because they've, they've started putting some in some of their core sets recently, and some stuff like Mystical Dispute and, and that cycle of cards in Throne of Eldraine. Yeah. So there's just some of these like color hoser cards that they've started to bring back. Yeah, I think uh, when we were talking about this article, before we get off into it, when we were talking about it as a potential episode topic, you had mentioned that you thought that it was particularly interesting how people were approaching the metagame at the time versus now. Yeah, yeah, because at that time, what was going on is there was this there was this deck that was pretty much the best deck in the format. And I think it from the looks of the article, it looks like they're talking about standard. Mm -hmm. And it was goblins, right? It's just, it, it was the best deck. Mono red goblins. But the one of those people were combating that was this, like, white X control deck mm -hmm. that had all these white cards that hated on red like Circle of Protection, Red, Silver Knight, Worship, Pulse of the Fields, like all these cards, right? Yeah. And so people were just afraid to play the red deck. They they didn't want to play the red deck because they're like, well, I'll, I'll run into the white deck and I'll just lose. And that's just so different from now where people don't want to play the deck that hates on the best deck. They're just like, well, I'll run into all of the other decks and I'll just lose. <laughs> yeah. And so that allows the best deck to just run rampant. Yeah. seems like people want to play the best deck or nothing now. Yeah. And if they can't play the best deck, then they just want the best deck banned. Yeah. Which I think is unfortunate. I think there is a lot more interplay between decks than people give credit for. But because mm -hmm. all they see is pretty much this like attitude from Dan Paskins has pretty much just become the dominant attitude of sure. just like, look, I'm going to play the best deck and I'm going to beat all of the decks that don't beat the best deck, and I'll just, you know, hope we get there against the other decks. Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good, except that people won't play the other decks now. Yeah. 
And so I think that it's back at that time period. It's just interesting to look at the difference at that time period. Everyone's like, Oh, I'm going to take the, the next level play of playing the deck that beats the the best deck, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, it kind of made this weird meta game where you ran into like a whole bunch of the white X control deck that's trying to beat mono red. And now we're on a different playing field where everybody's like just going back to that first level play instead of the next level one and they're just like nah this is the best deck. i'm just gonna play the best deck yeah and it's just it's just interesting the different cultures around magic at that time versus now and stuff like that sure and what i thought was particularly interesting about this article or the thing that really stood out to me is you know how like in this series a lot of times what we talk about are the things that have become the like, commonplace in conversation about magic, but you know, somebody coined that phrase or somebody said it first or whatever, yeah. you know, and like we've got things like the fundamental turn and uh, card advantage and to a lesser degree, the philosophy of fire, because that doesn't come up as much, right? I think only because it's so wordy. <laughs> right. I think that this concept that Dan Paskins well, maybe we, Maybe we start calling that philosophire. <laughs> maybe that'll catch on better. Sure. But I think this concept that Dan Paskins introduced is on that same level, where I don't actually hear it that much, but he kind of created this idea of the fear with capital letters, right? And... He ended his article with a quote from Dune by Frank Herber, and I think I, I would like to start there. Okay. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. That's the basic concept that Dan Paskins wants to, to suggest to, to his audience, is that you can't let your fear of what could go wrong prevent you from making the correct decision. Yeah. Because I think that he didn't say it exactly the same, but what I would say is the fear as a concept, you know, fear is something everyone is familiar with, but the fear is what makes you make irrational decisions while thinking the entire time, that this is what's logical is because the fear has gotten to you and has influenced your math, right? You're still sitting there doing the math and saying like, oh, what's better? Is this better or is this better? How, how many percentage points do I get by doing this, right? Yeah. But you're using the wrong numbers because the fear has got to you. Mm -hmm. And what he's talking about in this one about how they're using the wrong numbers is that people are frequently overlooking that game one. Because mm -hmm. in this article, what he's talking about is this white X control deck that has you know, Circle of Protection, Red, and Pulse of the Fields, Worship, Silver Knight has access to all of these cards in the sideboard. And like maybe Silver Knight in the main deck, something like that, you know? But they don't really main deck these cards, and especially not the ones that are especially good against the Goblins deck. Right. And so they're overlooking the fact that they're probably going to win game one. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, game two and three are going to be really bad for them just as far as the stats go. But as long as they have a possibility of winning, there's a lot of things that could go their way. And I think one of the things that is really advantageous to them at this time was the way the matchups are set up because the aggro deck is the best deck and the control deck is the one that's hating on it. And mm -hmm. the control deck has a lot more breakpoints on where it could stumble than the aggro deck sure. does. And that's what the aggro deck's looking for. And so if they're pretty locked for game one, like not guaranteed, but there's pretty good, you know, yeah. And then they just have to get game two or three, either one of those. And not only could their opponent not draw their hate cards or something like that, but they could mess up and stumble. 
And then he goes further mm-hmm. into it with like ways to make them stumble with your sideboard plan and stuff like that. Right. But his, he's just saying like the whole point is like they're doing their math wrong because they're discounting the locked in game one. It's like you won game one. So if you have a 40% chance to win games two and three, like that's pretty good. Yeah. They're like they're ignoring the fact that they're most likely to win game one and then assuming that they're going to lose both the second games. Yeah. Both are mistakes that they shouldn't be making because, for one thing, like, you know, you're saying that uh, they could stumble or you could cause them to stumble. And I think that it's worth diving into that a bit more is that, you know, you have a sideboard also. Yeah. If what you're scared of is your opponent being able to side in all these cards that are good against you, then you'd be aware of that when you're building your sideboard. Like we were saying last week when we talked about sideboarding, when you side cards in, you're not just siding cards in against your opponent's main deck. You're siding cards in against what your opponent is likely to have sided in. Yeah. And so you can adapt to what you know they're going to adapt to when you go into game two. Mm-hmm. And then also there's the point that I think you already mentioned, but you're not going to always play against these people. Yeah. Like, no matter how many of them there are at the event, it's not going to be everyone. Yeah, we were talking about the Players Tour online events, how they were like all these decks and everybody was playing all these things. And yeah. then I pointed out at the end, I was like, hey, but there's like two guys playing mono green mm-hmm. uh, with all of the different archetypes that there was one or two players playing. You'll play against some of those too. Yeah, and when you look at the top eights from your recent events, be like, oh, what's really winning right now? What are people playing a lot? And you see something like Wilderness Reclamation has four decks on the top eight. And like, oh man, everyone's playing Wilderness Reclamation. Like, okay, sure. In the top eight. At the event, there's a lot of people playing Wilderness Reclamation also, but, like, your round one is going to be mostly not Wilderness Reclamation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was, like, 25% a day one or something like that. It's like, that's a huge percentage, but that does mean that it's a quarter of what is there on day one. Right. And so you're more likely to run into not Wilderness Reclamation than that deck in particular, you know? Yeah. And when you do, the point here is that even if you're at a disadvantage against that deck, you can still work to pull that game off and get that round. Yep. Or, also another thing worth considering, maybe you do lose that round, and you're X and 1. That's an okay place to be in. It's not what you want, but yeah. you can make top 8 at X and 1. I've had some pretty good records from X and So we talked about the ideas of what he's talking about and everything, and I got to talk about the fear, and we talked about how we're screwing up the math and everything. Why don't we actually get into a bit about like what's actually in this article and just start at the top and work our way down through it? Yeah, so at the top of the article, he talks about this story about his friend playing a mono-red deck and loses game 1, and then they play game 2, and the player with the huge sideboard against mono red beats game two. And then game three, they have two chills, three propagandas and two winter orbs in play. And, and he asks his buddy is like, Oh, like, how did that go? And the guy's like, well, I, I decked him yeah, because like all these sideboard cards are cool, but like they don't win the game. Yeah. It's like, all right. So all of your spells cost four extra mana. You had to pay six mana every time you wanted to attack and your opponent could prevent all your damage. And you're only allowed to t- untap one mountain on your turn. What do you do? I win. <laughs> yeah, it's just like none of those things make you win the game. So like you got to keep that in mind. Like a lot of these sideboard cards like Circle of Protection and Pulse of the Field, they don't actually win in any way. Like Silver Knight, Core Firewalker, like those guys can get in there for some damage, you know? Sure. But then they're not doing as much of their defensive duty. Right. And like he goes on, he's like then 6 years later, people are still worried about people playing sideboards against red and he's like I'm not 
I run my red deck right into it, and here's why. And that's a lot of what we were talking about a few minutes ago, right? Yeah. And he's talked about, like, yeah, there's the mono-white deck that's a problem for you, but there's still, you know, Tooth and Nail and Ravager Affinity. Like, those are still decks that are out there that you're good against. Yeah, and I think one of the things he mentions here, actually, I, I kind of forgot this before, but this is one of the things I wanted to mention, is that this concept is mostly being applied to Constructed for our episode and for his article, but he brought this up because a really great place you can see this concept at work is in Draft. Because everyone knows what hate drafting is. You know, it's where you take a card, you're like, I I don't need this card. It's not good for me, but I really don't want someone else to have it. Yeah. And that's the fear again. That's the fear getting to you because you're saying like, oh, it'll be good for me to take this because then they won't have it. But really, the math is you just took a card that's not good for you. Yeah. You are making your deck worse and you don't have any way of knowing whether or not you would ever play against that card. Yeah. Like, even if you played against the person that drafted it. Are they going to be a player that can play it? Because they might have been forced into it on their last pick. Are they going to even draw it against you? Like, there's all these things that, like... Right. And if you'd have just taken a card that made your deck better, it would make your deck better against everyone you play. Even if you end up losing to the guy that got that card, you perhaps didn't lose to everyone else because you made a better deck. And he makes the comment, like, if that pack doesn't have anything in it that you would have played anyway, then you can hate draft the card because you're not losing anything, you know? If there's zero loss to taking the card, sure, go for it. But if you're taking it over something that you might want in your deck, that's probably a mistake. And I would point out that's true. Even something you could have in your sideboard for your deck, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Which includes almost everything. But it's just, I'm just saying, like, if the only good card in the pack is something that you already have four of in your draft deck, you may not need that card. Sure, that's fair. You are right. It is possible that taking that hate draft card isn't going to hurt you any. But I just want to point out that even if, you know, you don't think you're going to play a card, if it's a card on color for you and it's not just trash, that's probably better than the hate draft card. Probably, yeah. Because you might be in a situation where you'd rather have that than a card that you literally can't play. Yeah. But that's something that's hate drafting is a bugbear that I get into all the times where I'm like, I don't believe in hate drafting. (laughs) And I think there's a good idea of why. See, I hate draft whenever it's also a rare, so that I can also have this rare card. <laughs> I'm not rare drafting it. And then I think he goes on, talks more about his specific matchup against the, like you're saying, the white X control decks, right? Mm-hmm. That are sometimes white and red, sometimes white and blue, but that sort of thing. And I think that this is a good quote here that we've already talked about the concept in, but it's maybe valuable to bring up. As he said, In my experience, there are two things most Magic players get unnecessarily scared of. The unlikely nightmare matchup and the unbeatable sideboard card. Yeah, that's the thing is like whenever I go to these big tournaments for modern and stuff and I want to play Jund, people are like, yeah, but how are you going to beat Tron? And it's like, uh, we don't. Probably not. You know, <laughs> like that's the unlikely nightmare matchup. It's it's not super unlikely, but it's one of those things that's like out of the hundreds of people, it's not super likely that I play a lot of Tron. Yeah. And the hope is that the meta I'm playing in will be hurtful to Tron and that by the time I get to the top tables, there's no more Tron is the hope. Right. And so that's like the kind of the attitude is like, yeah, we, we don't beat that deck. But, you know, our idea is to beat 
the other people. And sure. that's how what he's doing here is that he's going like, look, people focus too much on this unlikely nightmare matchup or this unbeatable sideboard card because both things are not something that you should be particularly worried about because yeah if it's unlikely nightmare matchup yeah sure but like how good are they against everyone else like are there gonna be an especially large number of that player at the field you know Mm -hmm. then the unbeatable sideboard card even if they have four of it that's four out of 60 cards in their deck they're not guaranteed to get it yeah and even if they do i think another thing that is good in here is he's got a couple of like example hands that he talks about Mm -hmm. and this is all the way down to where he's getting into like his sideboard strategy right yeah but he mentions like there's the hand they get that has a couple of lands and like all of their sideboard cards right yeah like but if you can keep them off of one of those lands that hand is really bad you know or you know they do have all of their lands but Maybe they don't have their sideboard cards there. I mean, you can race them into drawing their sideboard cards. Yeah, it's like, can I kill you before you draw your circle of protection? Right. And those are both options when you're playing in sideboard. And I think that it's basically comes down to the same math about the, the nightmare matchup is, look, you hope that you just don't run into it. The math suggests that it's less likely that it will happen because there's more not the thing you're worried about than the thing you are worried about. And then if it does happen, you play to win. Yeah. And you can. You maybe won't. You maybe are even disfavored or unfavored or whatever, but you can. Maybe they just get mana screwed and you just win. Yeah. Those are all things that happen in magic sometimes. So right. it's just like sometimes they get mana screwed. Sometimes they just get flooded, you know, the other direction. and Or sometimes they, they're a nightmare matchup for you because of X seven cards and they don't draw any of those seven cards. Mm-hmm. Basically, like almost this entire article could be summed up by saying, look, what you need to do is just decide what the best deck is and play that to the best of your ability. Then you have the best deck and you are doing everything you can to win. And whatever else is going on may change that up and down some, right? Like maybe in this meta, there is nothing that threatens you and that's lovely. Maybe there's a couple things that are seriously bad for you, but you're not going to improve by playing a worse deck or not playing as good as you can, you know? Yeah. I think there is something to be said, though, for playing the worst deck. Sure. It is possible to make a metagame decision correctly, right? And play a deck that isn't necessarily the best deck, but because you think it will win in this meta. Mm -hmm. But as long as you are making that decision because you've done the math, not because you've got the fear then you're fine. Yeah. Or if you didn't make that decision because you like playing that deck better, or you're better at playing that style yeah. of deck. Sure. Yeah, that's the thing for me. Like, if I tried to play this Goblins deck that he's running, even if it is the best deck, i probably have a lower EV than if I ran the white X yeah. deck that he's talking about. Yes, and I think that that's the kind of thing that would do well for me in this meta, is that I'm good at playing the aggro deck. I'm not as good at playing aggro, I think, as I am at playing mid-range, but I'm comfortable doing it. And sure. so, like, if that was the best deck in the meta, I'd go like, well, I'm scared of this white X deck, but I can't play that. I don't I don't know how that works. So I'm going to play this one. <laughs> sure. What else did you want to bring up? So his specific sideboard strategies that he gets into in this, <laughs> one of them is making your opponent stumble. Yep. And with that one in this particular matchup, the way he's doing it is by playing land destruction cards, because for the most part, all of these sideboard cards they're talking about are kind of mana intensive. Stuff like Circle of Protection Red... It's only three to play and only one to activate, but it's... Two to play, isn't it? Oh, sorry, I'm thinking of Story Circle. Story Circle is the one that people play these days. It's all right. And that one's three to play because it lets you choose a color. Sure. But yeah, it's two to play, 
and one to activate. But if they want to progress their own game plan of winning, they can't devote all of their mana to that. So then it becomes additional taxes onto whatever else they're playing in a turn. Mm -hmm. And then stuff like if they're going to try and play Wrath of God against you, like that costs four. And so sometimes they keep these hands that are a little bit land light, but they should be okay. And if you play land destruction spells, then that means that they're not okay. Yeah, and they just aren't playing anything this game. Exactly. That's one sideboard strategy he had. And the other one that some people use, he says, is actually playing into the fear, which is playing cards that are not good for you, but are good against those cards. Yeah, it's cards that counter the cards that you're scared of. He talks about not wanting to play naturalize because it requires you to put some way of playing green spells in your deck. And what that was in his deck was like Wooded Foothills or City of Brass, which deal you damage mm -hmm. and you may not even draw them. And so if you have this naturalize in your hand that you can't cast it's not going to do you any good or if you have all these lands that deal you damage in the mirror match against the other red decks and where the naturalize is doing you no good then they're just hurting you yeah i think that's all pretty valid stuff and you just got to be careful because where you draw that line because yeah naturalize doesn't progress your game plan but i don't think he's against playing naturalize if it's not something that you're having to make wild changes on your deck to do because he talks about playing Shatter, and he thinks Shatter is perfectly fine to play, which is just worse naturalized, but it's red, so he doesn't have to add these other colored mana sources in his deck. Sure. And so, like, he plays Shatter for the Ravager matchup, because, like, if they have a really big creature, he needs it out of the way for his goblins to attack. So it progresses yeah. his game plan, and it's not hurting his deck to have it in the deck somewhere, mm -hmm. and he'll pretty much always be able to cast it, whereas the naturalize is like, you hurt your own deck in order to put this deck in there, you may not be able to even play it, and it's not actually progressing your game plan. Yeah, he kind of brought this back around to the beginning of the article where he said, like, this is the constructed equivalent of hate drafting. Mm -hmm. Is you have weakened your own deck, in this case by putting in lands that damage you, in exchange for getting an answer to that thing that you were scared of. That you may not see. Right. I think uh, he kind of closes out his article on another good point to close on. One last suggestion for conquering the fear. If you're scared of what your opponent might be able to do to you, think of how they're feeling. You're playing the best deck. They've got all these sideboard cards in their sideboard to deal with you because they know that you should win. Yep. And so that in of itself will just tell you, like, you are still favored, at least to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. You're playing the better deck. You will win that game one. And they've got all this sideboard stuff to deal with you. And that that's what you're scared of is the fact that they're scared of you. Yeah, and I hope that some of this stuff is stuff that Wizards keeps in mind, and that maybe they go back to printing more of these color hosing cards, because they've kind of been off it for a while. Yeah, that was something I noticed, is like, all of these sideboard cards that he mentions as being great against red, like, we don't see cards like those anymore. Yeah, they kind of had this attitude where, like, they're going like, well, Magic players like to play Magic. They don't like to stop other players from playing Magic. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, but being able to stop your opponent is good for a sideboard and metagaming, stuff like that. Yeah. And it makes it really hard to make the games really all that interesting if you're just two ships passing in the night and you're trying to see who can kill each other faster. Right. I think also these kinds of cards help prevent power creep in the game. Because right now, if you're saying, oh, well, I'm not going to make a card that just hoses my opponent's strategy, then if there's a problem and you're trying to print cards to deal with that problem, the way you have to do it is by making cards stronger than them, mm -hmm. rather than making cards that will counter yeah. them. And it looks to me like maybe Wizards is getting a little bit on board with maybe making some more of these hate cards more common again. 
because we've had in core 19 we had a cycle of instants that hosed their two enemy colors in some way and in Mm -hmm. throne of eldraine we had a cycle of cards that hosed their own color in some way yeah in the most recent set we had a cycle of cards that like have some kind of edge against one of their enemy colors even if not hosing and so it's just like I think they're kind of maybe working their way back towards doing some of this stuff because they saw how much people hated it for there to not be ways to counteract strategies. Because, mm-hmm. like, there weren't any good land destruction spells when Field of the Dead was the best deck in standard. Right. I think this kind of brings us kind of full circle back to what we were talking about at the very beginning before we got into what this article was all about. And that it seems like right now everyone wants to play the best deck. And when that becomes super prevalent, people just want it banned. They want cards out of it banned. And then we go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, what, what can we do that's good with the tools that we do have? Whereas, like, this article, the whole article was written and came out because people felt differently at that time. They're like, hey, if there's a really strong deck, let's use all of these tools to assassinate that deck. Yeah. Right? And then people couldn't play it. And that seems like a more interesting metagame to me than let's find the best deck and then ban it over and over and over. Yeah. I think if you get an abundance of these kinds of effects, that would help to make the metagame more healthy. Because then you get to have, you can play your deck where you're like, oh, I can play this card in my deck whenever I run into that matchup because it it hurts them. Mm Mm-hmm. And right now you can't necessarily do that because not all of these effects are cards that play with your strategy. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're playing a, a blue-red spells deck and you play against a control deck, like, you're like, oh, I can bring in these mystical disputes. But it's like, but like before all of my spells were burn spells, like mm-hmm. burn and draw spells. And I was just trying to cycle through my deck. And now I have this counter spell that when my opponent plays a spell, I can cast it. But if I have my sprite dragon in play that I'm trying to get a plus one plus one counter on or one of my prowess creatures in play, like I can't just cast this on my turn, you know? Right. And so if they have a bunch of varied answers, you know, it's like, oh, well, then also we'll make this red creature that's got can't be countered on it. And you can stick that in your sideboard against the control deck, you know? Mm-hmm. If they do stuff like that, sure. like more and more of them, then that means that whenever somebody wants to have an answer for those decks, there's more likely to be one that fits in with their strategy. And also, if somebody wants to, they can just build a deck that is like, look, I'm hating on this Team Erect deck this weekend. I'm taking all of the cards that are good against it, and I am playing mm-hmm. them. Right. And like, I think there are some people who would argue like, that's not fun for the metagame if there's the deck that's just all anti-Team Wreck. Yeah. Like, okay, it's not fun if you're playing Team Wreck and your opponent has that deck, but that deck isn't winning against everyone else. So it's not a metagame problem. Yeah, like, I was at a modern tournament where my buddy played against a guy who had main deck Stony Silence and Hercules Recall. They were main decking oh, wow. Stony Silence and Hercules Recall, four of each. Because they're just like, I want to beat Affinity this weekend, and I think this will be fun. And they played all nine rounds of Magic that day. And somebody, like, played against someone on one of the last tables, like, and they talked to him. The guy said, he's like, yeah, I had, like, three people call Judge on me today when game one I played a Hercules Recall against him. <laughs> because they thought they, they he had left his sideboard cards in. Yeah, but he's just like, but I thought this would be fun. And you know what? He thought it was fun. Maybe some of his affinity opponents didn't think it was fun that weekend. But everybody else in the room thought it was hilarious. (laughs) So I would go with he definitely increased the level of fun being had at that tournament. Right. And I would point out that even those affinity players who maybe lost to him, again, that's X and one. You know, Mm -hmm. who knows? For them, maybe that was like 
oh and five i don't know but it's like <laughs> that's one how... guy in the room he is not causing all of your problems right right you run into him and you lose that game it's like well you know what maybe that puts you out of the running for top eight but if it does it's not because of him mm-hmm. he contributed sure but you're not losing all your other games because you played against him once. Yeah, and so it's just like one of those things like, yeah, people might not think that it's fun to play against a deck that's got 12 hate cards against you, but when they play against everybody else, they're laughing. Yeah. And so I kind of hope they print more of these things. Yeah, I think that would be good. I think it would be healthy for the metagame for the reasons we said. You know, like create options for people so that people would be more likely to play a more varied metagame. And yeah. I, I think that it also will help prevent the, the power creep that we are definitely seeing. I think that's another contributing factor to the situation we've got ourselves in, at least this last year, where it seems like every season it's like, oh, here's the best deck this season, next season it'll be banned, and we'll start again. Yeah, that's the thing is, cards having to be banned is not fun. Now, it's right. better to ban them if they need to be banned than to not. Right. But the fact that cards need to be banned is not fun. And what mm-hmm. they need to do to stop that is to have more counterplay to those strategies. Like, the problem right. with Oko was not really, honestly, that Oko was too good. It's that all of the cards that were good against Oko were good in the Oko deck. Yeah. It, like, they were playing Sultai already, and the best cards against him was a black card, Noxious Grass, and a green card, Veil of Summer. Hmm. Those are cards you can play with your Oko Sultai deck. Right. And so it's just, if you have more and more varied answers and hate cards, then you're more likely to have decks that can crop up that can do some kind of counterplay to it. And they don't always have to be color hosers. Stuff like Vryn Wingmare that just got printed is a good card that I, I'm glad they reprinted, you know? What is Vryn Wingmare? It's a white and two for a 2-1 flying horse that says instant sorceries cost one more to cast. Okay. Or it might be non-creature sure. spells. Actually, I think it might be non-creature spells. Like, like it's like the Thalia attacks, but it's on a three-mana 2-1 flyer. Sure. Well, I think that that might be a good place to wrap this article up. But I think that maybe the big takeaway this week is, like, this article may not be especially relevant anymore to what people are doing, as it's encouraging people to do the thing that people are doing now. But I think it is definitely a, a really good kind of snapshot of how things used to work differently, and maybe maybe we could apply that to some card design and our like meta game theory and stuff today to yeah, maybe and improve it's our a good formats. argument for bringing back some of these color hosers and strategy hate cards because even if there is a abundance of them in your format, that doesn't mean the deck is unplayable. Right. That's funny because like this article is kind of about like how those things aren't that scary. Right? Yeah. And what we're taking away from it is like, oh man, wish we had more of those things. Because <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I want there to be a question about whether or not you should play the best deck. And that was the case then. Right. You know, Dan Paskins believed this way, and a lot of Magic players believed another. And so yeah. I, I like that it was a question. I think you're right. But I think that just about wraps my thoughts on who's afraid of the big bad circle, or why I'm not afraid of stupid white cards. <laughs> Well, I'm not afraid of stupid any cards, okay? I'm going to play my Tarmogoyf, and I'm going to beat your face up. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. I'm Mintok, the mind taker. Think we could take a quick judge call before uh, time's up in this round? Yeah, I think so. Judge! We had something just kind of relevant to some of this stuff. Sure. Why is my thing? Haha, I found it. So, these cards that 
hate on the red deck, you know? Yeah. Since then, we've actually gotten quite a bit of cards that actually kind of fight back against that. Sure. So stuff like Circle Protection Red that says that you can pay one to prevent damage from a source that's red, you know? Yeah. Or Core Firewalker that's got protection from red. Or Hallow that prevents damage from target instant and sorcery. Sure. Like, those kinds of cards are some of the cards that people side in against these red decks. Mm. And just an interesting way you can play against them that gets a little bit into the nitty-gritty of the rules is playing spells like Skullcrack or Stomp off of Bonecrusher Giant that say damage can't be prevented this turn. Because it gets plays into that thing that, like, in Magic, if something says you can't do... Like, on a card, if a card says you can't do something versus if a card says you can do something, the can't wins out. Like, if the rules say something and a card says something, the card wins out no matter what it is they're saying. But if it's card versus card, and one says you can't do something and one says you can then the can't's going to win out. And so if damage can't be prevented, then and they try to prevent damage, it doesn't matter if they tried earlier or they're trying later. You've, you've got this thing on here now that says damage can't be prevented. Right. And so if you attack with your Goblin Guide and they block with okay. a core Firewalker, and then you play Skullcrack, it says damage can't be prevented, then your Goblin Guide gets to deal his two damage to the core Firewalker and it will die. Like, they get a gain of life because you cast a Skullcrack, but right. you killed the, go- the core Firewalker and got the table. Yeah. But, uh, what if you have played your skull crack and attacked and everything, and then I activate my story circle? Well, there's still an effect in play going on that says damage can't be prevented, and so your story circle does not do anything. You may activate it as much as you want, and it will not do anything for that turn. Right. So it doesn't matter whether this effect predates or is layered over on top of the can't be prevented. It still just can't. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's really just what I wanted to say is just like, it's something that a lot of Magic players know, but not all of them. And I think that a lot of these judge calls are probably going to be more tailored towards the new players because the more experienced players are more likely to have already come across them and already have it figured out. Sure. I think it's it's kind of funny when I was suggesting this article to you earlier before you were, you know, at your PC and you could click the link and everything. Um, I described it. I was like, ah, oh, it's an article this guy wrote about playing a red deck in an environment full of all these white cards that, like, Circle of Protection and, and Core Firewalker and stuff, right? Although that wasn't actually a good example. Because it wasn't a card when this guy wrote this article. Yeah. But I, I said that stuff. And the first thing you said is like, oh, Skullcrack. Yep. And push through. And I was like, uh, sure. That's not actually what the article's about. But, but yes, <laughs> that works. Yeah, and it, like whenever we were talking about this stuff, I was talking about in Zendikar Standard when Core Firewalker was being played, and also a card called Safe Passage that's a white and two and says prevent all damage dealt to you and creatures you control till end of turn. Yeah, I played a burn deck that had zero creatures in it, and one of the things that I played in it was a card called Unstable Footing. It was one mana damage can't be prevented this turn. Sure, and it was you had a kicker cost of four to deal five damage to an opponent. And so, like, sometimes it was an instant speed Lava Axe, Mm -hmm. and that was hilarious, because I was basically Lava Axing people in Standard, but (laughs) that's not why it was in the deck. It was in there for that one mana damage can't be prevented, and that's how I stopped these core Firewalkers and safe passages from just, like, ruining my strategy. Sure. As I played this thing that all it did was say damage can't be prevented for the most part, and... Sometimes that was good enough. Yeah, I think I remember that card now that now that you've... Yeah, you remember me lava-axing you? Is that what you remember? No. No, <laughs> I just remember what the card is like, one mana damage can't be prevented. And I was always like, that's such a niche thing. How often are people actually preventing damage? Well, every time you see the word protection from. Yep. And that's that's the thing that people, a lot of people don't realize, that protection, you still assign damage to the creature and stuff. It just it gets 
prevented. And so if there's something that right. says damage can't be prevented. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I, I do think it's, it's a good thing that you explicitly said that because I think that's part of what makes this a good judge call here is that uh, I think that even a lot of enfranchised players don't realize yeah, that protection means prevention. On this card, it says the card can't be dealt damage by sources of whatever type, you know, red or creatures or right. sources controlled by a named player or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say, what, like, how you stop that damage. They just say you can't be dealt damage by it. It's like, oh, can't be dealt damage. So right. it's not being prevented. It just can't do it. But it's like, no, yeah, like, yeah, no, you, you assign the damage. It just gets prevented is how the mechanics of that work. Right. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add about the judge call? No, no. Okay, well... Well, I guess I do. Um, one thing is, if you think that judge calls like this that are really short and uh, not really long and have huge expository... <laughs> They're really short and not really long. Yeah, if you want more of the, like, the in-depth stuff, you know, feel free to email us at planeswalkerspod at injunathan.com. Yes. Ah, yeah. See, look, I did it. And... Give me a judge call and I'll talk to you about why things work the way they do or why they don't work the way they don't. Yeah, I think our judge call is probably, I I don't think it has been thus far, but theoretically is the most tied into our feedback section in in that if you have any judge questions or really finance questions too would be fine. Yeah, like if you're like that guy that wanted to message me about whether or not he should sell a Zugan and you want to wait a week for your response, feel free to email it to us. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, like, as Donovan says with his snarky response there, you know, if you were talking about, like... Time-sensitive stuff, you maybe... Time-sensitive stuff, yeah, this probably isn't the best way to do it. But, like, more general ideas about, like, how finance works in in Magic. Like, Like uh, if they want... If you want to know how I know whether or not it's a good idea to open a box of cards and sell singles out of it, or to sell the box, mm -hmm. you know, you can... Or, like, how do you keep up with really quickly changing prices of single sales and stuff. Yep. All that is stuff that if you have any questions, you know, write to us at planeswalkerspod at enginewithin.com. And if they fit one of our sections, then you've done some of our work for us and we will use that. And if not, we'll do it in our feedback section. But remember, Donovan is lazy and does no work. So please help Duncan in any way you can. But this week, still no feedback. So because we're doing a perfect job. Yep. So perfect podcast. Thank you. There's another one. Let's go. (laughs) So that's it for this week, Donovan. If anybody does want to get in touch with you because they need to know about their Ugans and they can't wait a week, where can they find you? Well, you can come into Boardwalk and hassle me there. Uh, You do got to wear a mask, and we're not running events, but you can buy stuff or just uh, ask me questions, pick my brain, that kind of thing. And then you can uh, tweet me on the Twitters at day underscore Donovan. And um, I'm trying to get more regular streaming. I've kind of gotten it going to, like, I'm streaming on Twitch once a month at twitch.tv slash dday underscore 99. So you can follow me there and uh, you can ask me a question when I'm streaming and I'll probably reply to you in the next five or ten minutes. Cool. And you can find a link directly to Donovan's Twitch in the show notes as well as all of our news sources, deck lists from the events that we talked about. And the article that we were discussing this week is all down there beneath the episode. But if you want to contact me, I'm Duncan. You can hear more from me on Twitter at Engine Within, or you can check out our podcast, The List, all the games eventually that I do with our brother Daniel, where we talk about video games, and Daniel tells me why I'm wrong about economics. All right. <laughs> if you well, want I like to find that, people tell you you're wrong about things. So I'll probably be too. Well, I so very often am. <laughs> <laughs>
But you can find that show, you can find more of this show, and you can find like our Tee Public store and, and Patreon and all that stuff at injamathin.com. Hasta lasagna. Don't get me on. Later days. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Oh my god. That is what he said. But that's I was like, yeah, Dan Paskin's like super into playing like mono red decks and like every format. Uh-huh. That's what he always played. But like his article was about the goblins thing. Yeah, yeah. The goblins are super good If you do well enough, you will get that back in store city or store store city store city. <laughs> In store credit. I just had a beef jerky cascade. A beef jerky cascade? Yeah. Which are like one player at a big event brings beef jerky and that makes like the other players around them be like, oh, now I want some beef jerky. And they like, they go and get some beef jerky between rounds and before you know it, everyone at the event is eating beef jerky. That's exactly right. It's a beef jerky cascade, right? Mm-hmm.